0: Okay, anyone recall what we've been doing the last few weeks? Okay, I've called it the greatest story ever told. You've heard it growing up as the Sermon on the Mount. Why is it called the Sermon on the Mount? There you go. He was on a mountain when he gave this message to the people. In Matthew, how many chapters does it cover? Yeah, five, six, and seven, about three chapters And if you were to look, if you were to look at Western civilization, and if a historian was to be honest, if you took the Ten Commandments, and you took the Sermon on the Mount, you would literally have the foundation of Western civilization. It is the major teachings that have shaped the culture of the Western world, and it is the teachings of Christ, and it was the law of Moses that Christ came to fulfill. Now it's interesting, as we might, you want to make your way there to Matthew chapter 5. The context from Matthew 5 goes back in chapter 4, verse 17, when Jesus began his public ministry. What was the first word that came out of his mouth? Repent, which means what? It means turn around. So repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which implies there are two kingdoms and only two. There's the kingdom of heaven and there's the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of darkness. It's the same thing. And what Jesus is saying is you've got to go a different direction to come into my kingdom. Jesus is saying there's different values, there's different standards, There's it's just a different way of life to be what we call a Christian, what Jesus called a follower of him. It's different to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. So what Jesus is basically saying is he's saying, listen, I want you to like tear out the old sheet of paper you live by and let me give you a new way of living. And guess what? You'll often have to make some changes to get on board with me. Now, you remember the first week, what was the first week about? Now, be attitudes are be happy attitudes, which was the key to happiness. And isn't it interesting that the first key to happiness in Jesus was what? To be poor in spirit. A very kind of abstract word, but simply means someone who totally and completely depends on God. So Jesus was saying just virtually the opposite of what we find today. If you're reading self-help books or self-fulfillment or how to be happy, how to find meaning in life. Jesus basically said, listen, when you come to totally and completely depend on me and realize that your answers, your happiness, your contentment, your solutions, your salvation is not in yourself, but it's in me. See, there are some religions that will even encourage people and people to look within them, to find the God within them, to find the answers that they're looking for. And Jesus is basically saying, you're not going to find anything good in there. You're going to find your identity, not in yourself, but your identity in me. So last week we talked about three things and two were a little bit abstract, kind of a little bit. You know, what does this mean when he said you're salt and light? Though he gave a metaphor, or it was kind of like a parable within a, within the Sermon on the Mount, comparing something spiritual to something natural. But then he talked about the believers are salt in life. He talked about Christ being the fulfillment of the Old Testament law, which, you know, kind of informational. But then he really started getting into real life the way we live, and he talked about murder. And Jesus basically said, listen, if you have anger in your heart, you better be careful because you're virtually, in the eyes of God, uh, the same as murder. Some translations said if you have uh, anger without cause in your heart but jesus is looking literally into our hearts to show us that i want to take you to a higher step now today he's really if i can say it this way going to get down and dirty in issues that we deal with in america he's going to deal with adultery and divorce so how many know there's nothing more current and more real whether you're in this church today whether you're christian or non-christian than, than these two subjects in america today so let's let's uh, take a peek matthew chapter 5 verse 27 The first we'll speak about is what Jesus called adultery, or adultery would be found not only externally or in the act, but in your heart. Now, notice verse 27. Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said. Now, what was he talking about when Jesus said you've heard it was said? Yeah, Old Testament law. In other words, the the law and the prophets, as we learned last week. So you heard it said, it's been written in the teachings of Moses, uh, the Pentateuch. It has been recorded, and and the Jewish rabbis have been teaching you these things. But basically, you have heard that it was said, you must not be guilty of adultery. Now, when he said you must not be guilty of adultery, he was referring to basically adultery is simply uh, unlawful uh, sexual activity between a married person and another person. Now, you see it every night on prime time. If you, if you would choose to look at it. It's in virtually every show, the theme. There's no boundaries. There's no rules and though no anything. But God jumps right in the middle of it and said, wait a minute. Uh, there's supposed to be a, 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 a singular focus. There's supposed to be a commitment between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. And outside of that, you've crossed a boundary. Now, he, in the book of Exodus, the Old Testament is actually quoted twice in the, New, in the Old Testament. Uh, very succinctly, uh, Exodus twenty fourteen says, you shall not. Yeah, but then he goes on in verse 17, says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So he's saying basically is, listen, the act is wrong and it's prohibited. He's going to bring the whole standard up a notch to say, listen, it's not just what you do outwardly. It's what goes on in your heart and what goes on in your mind. And that's why pornography is so dangerous the world we live in today, because it awakens desires. It prompts people to live a life of fantasy. Uh, it's, it's very much purported by the world. It's protected by our Supreme Court that gives the pornographers the right to do it. But, boy, it causes a whole lot of pain and heartache, and it never fulfills on what it promises, but it is a lure that attracts many people. Now, as Jesus is referring to the Old Testament law, I want you to think now, when we talk about the word context quite often, how many know we are living in the New Testament? The New Testament means what? New covenant. It's a new dispensation versus the Old Testament. The Old Testament was 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 called a covenant of works. It was the covenant of the law. Uh, The New Testament was a covenant of grace. But even in the Old Testament, this covenant of law, we're told about it. Galatians chapter three, verse twenty four, the purpose of the law. Now, think about it. If you think about the law of Moses, you're not just talking about Ten Commandments. But I mean, they are talking about everything under the sun. From the, For the Jews, it was the food you ate. It's what you did on the Sabbath or the Saturday. Um, it's how many times you had to come to the temple and worship. I mean, they had laws about everything under the sun. If you really want to get into the law, you'd read the book of Exodus. You'd read the book of Leviticus. Much is repeated in Numbers and Deuteronomy. All throughout this is this called the law of Moses. But Galatians 3.24 says... The law is our tutor or our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. In other words, you could never be saved under the law. But what the law would do, the law would show a perfect standard from God that was intended to show people their frailty and their weakness and their inability to be righteous in the eyes of God. Hence, in the Old Testament law, in addition to the commandments was also the sacrificial system. And it was a huge litany of of rules that they had to obey. And the sacrifices would revolve around a blood sacrifice that was repeated not only once a year for the sins of the people, but throughout the year there were sin offerings as the people became aware of the activities that they were doing wrong in the eyes of God. So it was the law was intended to be a constant reminder is that you cannot live a righteous and pure and holy life. And you've got to approach God through the blood, through the blood of a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. And this is very key because the law uh, I've known Christians, good people, friends of mine that tried to go back and live under the law, just like the book of Galatians warned people about. But the law was not intended for you and I to go back to to be made righteous or perfect. The law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Even in the New Testament, as we look in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15, there was a great question in the church of how much of the Old Testament law should New Testament believers or Gentiles obey. And basically, the Jerusalem council, which was apostles, it was prophets, it was elders in the Jerusalem church, people that had walked with Christ, only came up with about three things that they told the Gentiles to do. They said, you shouldn't eat uh, uh, meat that, from animals that was strangled with blood. You should avoid sexual immorality. And it was one more, all of which were very offensive to jewish people so the law was never intended to make a person righteous but it was intended to point them to christ and similarly that's what jesus did with murder see the act of murder is wrong our civil courts will punish it but how many know you don't go to jail for having murder in your heart today see the closest law that we have that's similar to that is what's called hate crimes legislation it was recently passed by our Senate, not yet really enforced publicly. We haven't seen a big case yet where what's likely going to be the target is a homosexual activist group will come against someone that has deep pockets to fight the thing in court uh, that's basically said we believe that that's, that's a sin in the eyes of God. And that's termed a hate crime where some government official judges the, at, the attitudes of your heart. As opposed to your actions, and that's a very dangerous ground to walk on. But Jesus started there with with murder, and now he's going to go to kind of a step two. He's going to talk about this thing called adultery. And likely, if you know, if this standard would apply to all of us, virtually every person in this room would be guilty. Not only the act of adultery, but if you've had lust in your heart towards another person. Um. So, verse twenty-eight, Jesus said it this way: I tell you that if anyone looks at a woman lustfully and lust uh, uh the uh let's see the new century version describes as wants to sin sexually with her if he wants to sin sexually with a woman in your mind you've already done that sin so and and that's why the television shows we watch, the movies we go to, while all of this, it awakens a natural desire within us that God intends to be fulfilled in marriage. But when we see it out there, it pulls us into this place where adultery is prevalent. So what Jesus is basically trying to do is he's trying to say there's a higher standard to live by, but guess what? Ultimately, he's going to say the only way you can realize this is through me. Um, let's see. I read an interesting comment in one of the commentaries today studying the passage. Um, It it talked about lust being that which awakens forbidden desire. Uh, The verse doesn't just refer to noticing a woman as attractive, but it refers to looking at her with the intentions of sleeping with her. And there's a difference. I can't tell you where it is, but there's a difference. That's why, women, it's so important that you don't dress in a provocative way. You may not can relate to that. Some of you ladies perhaps can. But um, uh, men are aroused differently from women, psychologists tell us. Uh, when, when, if you wear clothing or your children wear clothing... Uh, that's very skimpy, that's, uh, you know, that shows more than it should, that's intended to arouse feelings out in the world, it causes problems with, you know, your brothers in the body of Christ or conversely with your sisters. That's why it's important in the Bible that calls us to live in a modest fashion because it can be a stumbling block to people. It's a huge challenge, though. Anybody have teenagers in here? Yeah. Uh, My wife tells me, you go out and try to find a modest bathing suit, it's virtually impossible. I mean, you know, you try to find, uh, for a teenager, a modest bathing suit and even clothing. It just seems like the world we live in today is pulled more and more into a risque fashion. And there's, you know, you think peer pressure is hard when you're an adult. If you can remember back to your teenage years, it is doubly difficult for the pressures these kids live under to be included. So it's a huge pressure in our world, and it's just out there. But Jesus is putting a, a standard of purity before us. And look at verse 29. This is pretty interesting. If your right eye causes you to sin, what are you to do? Take it out and throw it away or gouge out your eye. Hmm. It's better to lose one part of your body than have your whole body thrown into hell. Let's look at it again. And then he says it again in verse 30 in a little different way. If your right hand causes you to sin, what are you to do? Cut it off and throw it away. Why? It's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go where? Okay. Now, is that literal? How do you know? Okay, here's my point. The Bible sometimes speaks with the language of exaggeration or a, a hyperbola, and you don't always know when it's talking that way. But so here, right in the middle of it, Jesus said, which commonly is interpreted, is an exaggeration, but he's exaggerating the point because on the other side of this is what? Hell. I mean, he's trying to underscore the seriousness of sexual purity and the consequence of it he says it two times and he says it in such a graphic fashion like it would be better if you plucked your eye out now i'm sure you've heard accounts where some people took a little and they gouged their eye out and they ended up in a psychiatric hospital perhaps they were they were disturbed or perhaps they were just trying you know trying to obey something I, i i don't know but i believe it was an exaggeration but just because it's an exaggeration it's meant to underscore how serious it is See, we use exaggerations all the time. My my younger daughter's ten, and she's still uh, young enough to kind of play this game. How much? How much do you love me? And she said, "Well, I love you as big as all the trees in the world." And I say, "Well, I love you as big as all the grass in the world." And she'll say, "Well, I love you as big as all the stars in the sky." And and, and then she'll say, "Well, I love you all the stars and the grass and the trees times a trillion million," and that kind of wins. But what are we doing? We're just exact We're just trying to say. Let me tell you how big my love for you is. And God's, what God's trying to say is, hey, let me shake you up to realize how serious the subject is. Because hell is on the other side of it. Now, for, for just a second, let's forget just a second about God can forgive our sin. And let's forget a second that we're his children. He wants to shake us to realize there's some serious consequences out there. See, and, and, and we just, it's almost like our world has desensitized us through music, I was listening to a song the other day that uh, 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 someone was telling me they were going to play in their in their uh, uh, dance recital, and it just blew my mind. I, I, you know, I, I've got a daughter that's been a cheerleader, and I wonder sometimes, is that the only songs they have to choose from? I mean, is there not something better that they could choose to do? I mean, I mean, how much shake do you have to have in your hips? I mean. Really now, and you that are you that are parents that have children, it's tough raising kids today if you want If your kid wants to play competitive sports in- sco- in college or in, or in school, you know that that gone are the days when I was a boy we played baseball for two or three months out of the year today they play year round and they're going to be playing games and tournaments on sundays and If you play any kind of upper league or competitive ball to get them ready for a high school or a college scholarship, they've got to play on a traveling team, and you can just forget about Sundays. And that's a huge pressure that comes upon a parent, whether it's dress or sports or those kind of things. And I I, I, I used to think I had it figured out, and I don't. Today, you can ask my wife. She can tell you you what to do. Not that I don't have it figured out, but she can kind of tell you our experience. But it's tough out in the world because the world is out there trying to pull us across boundaries that God is trying to erect. Now, let me ask you this. What is such a big deal about adultery anyway? What's the big deal? What does that mean? Alright, right, so it breaks an agreement, it breaks vows, it breaks a solemn commitment. Many vows in America today for marriage, rather than till death do us part, says as long as love will last. So it's not an unconditional I love you, but it's got boundaries to it. It breaks a covenant. What else does it do? Why is adultery such a big deal? Ma'am? Okay, harms the children. What does it do to children? Everything bad, not good. Okay, for example, one is it introduces those children to the world of immorality. It just brings the standards of life. To... And listen, if you've been divorced, please, this is not a condemnation at all. All of us who've experienced the negative part of sin should want everybody to know so they don't go there. Something else that it does, I believe it opens the door for generational curses that our kids will have to battle things. And so we've got our children, we've got our spouse. Not only does it a break covenant that you made with them, but guess what it does? Is it is it destroys... Uh, trust at the deepest level between a man and a woman. I could just tell you, as working with people over many years, there's nothing more more difficult for a relationship to endure than an affair. Now, can it be healed and covered? Yes. Is it ever the same? No. It might be 99%, but but you can never go back across a line that you've crossed. There's something about trust. Why else is it so bad? Sin against our body it has physical consequences. I mean, there could be pregnancy, there could be disease, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The guilt, the torment that you have to live under. And how about this? In the most basic level, it's breaking God's law. And that in itself should be enough. And then, of course, we've already mentioned that in this passage it tied to the consequences of, of hell along with it. Look at First Thessalonians chapter four, uh, 4. Let me broaden just a little bit as we're on this subject about uh, sexual morality in our world today. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, this is what Paul adds to the teaching of Christ. One of the best passages that I know in the New Testament about uh, a call to sexual purity. First Thessalonians 4 verse 3. It says God's will. Now, now that's a pretty strong statement how many of we all believe that the bible is god's will but when jesus would sometimes say truly truly or verily verily or hey god listen to me or if paul or another author would say this is clearly the will of god how many mean that's an attention getter so here he says god's will is for you to be holy which means what set apart see holy doesn't mean and i don't say this in any derogatory fashion but if you saw in our paper today, the Episcopal's were beginning to celebrate the Lent season, which Ash Wednesday, I guess, is next week. And it was very interesting how they took thats today. OK, pardon me. They took pine. Uh, they took not pine, but uh, palm branches that they'd had and, and, and they burned those things. They put some oil on them and they and, and, and these ashes were literally in the sign of the cross, which is intended to be an act of repentance. Now, if the heart is in that, a tradition is a wonderful thing. But if it's just an act, that's just a form, it means nothing. Are you with me? So there are a lot of traditions that are healthy and wonderful that remind us of spiritual truth. That's what communion is all about. But if it's just a form or a ritual, it means nothing. So here we go. It, to be holy, to stay away from all sexual sin. Now, sexual sin in the Bible is simply defined as any sexual activity outside the committed monogamous relationship between a man and a woman in a covenant relationship of marriage. In other words, God blessed the sexual union. How many know God? God created the idea of sex. I mean, you know, listen, the, part, the, the, the bugs didn't do it out of this, you know, evolutionary muck that came out. I mean, you know, the apes didn't invent it. God invented. The sexual experience. He invented it as a good thing. It's not just for procreation, but it was for enjoyment. The Bible said in Hebrews, the marriage bed is a sacred place. It's a blessed place, but it's to be undefiled. I mean, the anatomy of a man and a woman is not an accident. You know, the pleasure zones that God created with it is a gift to a husband and a wife. But outside of those boundaries, God has said it's wrong. Now, if you don't like it, you've got to take that up with God. In the Garden of Eden, everything was wonderful in the Garden of Eden, but God said, Listen, there's just one tree you don't need to touch. It's the, tr- it's the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day you touch it, gonna, what's going to happen? You're going to die. And what did Satan do? The same thing he does today. He said, It's not so bad. Look at it, it's desirable to make you wise. It's a pull and it's attraction. And lust and temptation has always operated the same way. The devil basically says, go ahead one little bit, it's not going to hurt you. And guess what? Because of Adam and Eve's fall, because they believed the lie, we fell into the ditch that we're in today. Okay, same thing here. Verse 4, then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who don't know God and his ways. And notice what it said about uh, learning to control your bodies and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion. Uh, I I read a a, a, um, a testimony, if I can use that word. It's probably not the best. But if someone uh, of a Christian who has made quite an impact, I won't call their name in the Christian world, uh, and basically they said, all my life I fought the urge to express my homosexual desires. And finally, I came to grips with the fact that God created me gay. And I stopped fighting it. And I accepted the way God made me. Now listen, what if I said the same argument? I just finally stopped fighting against my desire to lust for, other, for women. And I just gave in because that's the way God created me. And that's the way God made me. Or how about if somebody said... I just finally accepted the fact that I like to have sex with little boys or I like to have sex with little girls and I just stopped fighting it because that's the way God made me. Or how about if somebody said, I just finally stopped fighting the desire. I just wanted my dog to be my partner. So I just stopped fighting the urge because that's the way God made me. No, every one of those are arguments that are used by people who may have a relationship with Christ, but they're listening to a lie. See, the truth is not self-determined. I don't get to decide truth on my own. And that's the spirit of America. America has so deified self that we almost become God in our own mind, and we get to make up the rules, and we get to decide right and wrong. We make up God in our own image. And that's the great sin of America, I think. God has made the boundaries and God has set them. And the Bible is saying, listen, you need to know how to possess, how to control your body, whether it's lust for an opposite sex, the same sex, an underage, an animal. a God only knows what else. Okay. Um, Never harm, verse 6, and this is the New Living Translation. Don't harm or cheat a Christian brother in this matter by violating his wife. For the Lord, now this is a little scary, avenges all such sins as we have solemnly warned you. What does that mean? God's going to get you. I mean, that's kind of like the hell comment that Jesus talked about. I mean, so what he's saying, on the other side are consequences. The devil's saying they're not there and it's not a big deal, but God's saying they're there. But who else does it? Who does sexual immorality harm? Think about it. Because sin doesn't just hurt somebody in private. Who does it hurt? Hurts you, you sin against your body. Hurts who else? It hurts the other person. It hurts your spouse or your future spouse. It hurts their spouse or their future spouse. It hurts your children. And parents. I mean, it hurts everybody. God forbid. But, you know, what would happen if I or one of our pastors were to fall into immorality? Who would that hurt? The whole church. The community. Whatever witness that I or we have built over the years. There you have it. Um. Look at verse seven. God has called us to live holy lives set apart by whose standards His, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these what rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, that's pretty powerful. I'm going to I'm going to move along, but let me quickly say this. What do you do if you're struggling with sexual sin? Let me just give you one scripture. It's Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen. It's a powerful one. It says, he who covers his sin or conceals them will not prosper. But if you confess and forsake them, you'll find what? Mercy. Which simply means if, if you're battling something that's bigger than you, you need to get a mature Christian brother or sister. You need to get some help before you fall prey to it. You need to have someone in your life. That you can say, listen, would you pray for me? It doesn't need to be behind the microphone of the church. And, you know, it just needs to be in a private setting and say, listen, I'm having a struggle. Would you pray for me? I'm telling you, something happens when you get it out of your lips and you get it out there. Because when your ears hear it, I am struggling with sin. It does something. It does something to me. And I guarantee it does something to you, too. If you will stop calling it your friend. But the problem is, is we like it's a friend to us. I mean that's why pornography is such a pull. It's a private, quiet, controllable friend. Okay? Um let's go on. Matthew chapter five, back in verse thirty one. So now we've just talked about this thing called adultery, and we've talked about I- I- implicit in that is, is is the marriage relationship that's to be sacred. But now he's going to take it a step farther in saying marriage is sacred and binding. Sacred is another word for holy. It means it's God-ordained, and binding has a sense of permanence to it. Look at verse 31. Again, you have heard that the law says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. Now, he's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. Moses actually wrote that verse You've heard the law says, a notice of divorce. But I say, a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits what? Now, is adultery a big deal? Well, it's one of the Ten Commandments. I mean, it's it's a big deal in God's book. Let me First of all, let me t- talk context to you. Now, Jesus Jesus is speaking to this large group of people, but he's also addressing a debate in first century Judaism. In first century Judaism, there was a question. Well, first of all, under Jewish law, adultery simply referred to the wife's misbehavior. And if you look at this passage, it seems like, well, a man's not committing adultery. The woman is committing adultery. He wasn't saying that because men are exempt. He was saying it to say that that's what the, that, was in, that was what was embedded in Jewish culture in fault of their day because he's just said in Matthew five twenty eight, if you look on a woman lustfully, you've committed. Yeah, so this is not a man thing or one, this is a both thing, but in Jewish law, it was more focused on the woman. Now, um, under, under Jewish law, Greek culture, and Roman civilization, Roman laws, a, a woman basically had no rights. You know, it, it, that didn't mean that it was right. You know, the Bible will oftentimes address things not the way they should be, but the way they are. For example, the the context of slavery. Why did the New Testament tell us what did the New Testament tell a slave to do? Obey his master. Do you realize that scripture was used in southern churches prior to the Civil War to justify slavery because it's in the Bible? But it was not a justification of slavery. It was simply speaking into the context of. Of, this, of, of what was there in, in, in the world. Two-thirds of the world of their day were slaves. And that doesn't mean they were slaves as we think in American slavery, but when a people would be conquered by a foreign power, you could be a doctor and you would just be a doctor who's now a slave functioning as a doctor. It didn't mean that you just did menial labor, but you had lost your rights. Paul had the rights of a Roman citizen. And you remember one of the centurions said, hey, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. So the world was basically slave or free. Well, in the midst of this, um, uh, here we're looking now at this idea uh, uh, of the Jewish concept of, of divorce and a woman's role. And here's another thing: there was two schools of thought among the Pharisees. One followed the teaching of, the, or the school of Shammai. He was a rabbi, and the other was Hillel. Now, Shammai basically said this: his interpretation surrounding divorce was that it was that uh, um, divorce was only possible if your spouse was unfaithful. So, very conservative and very limited. The school of Hillel was on the opposite end. They basically had said anything. If a man wants out, he can divorce his wife. If she burned the toast, literally, it was written down. If she burned a meal, he could divorce her. If he found someone more attractive, he could divorce her. So see, here's what happens. Moses wrote a scripture. And we're going to read how Jesus responded to that later on in Matthew. He talked more about it. But Moses gave a scripture, and the rabbi's job was to interpret what it meant. So there were two schools of interpretation. One was very loose, divorced for any and every reason. One was very narrow, only for immorality. So obviously, which one is Jesus going to pick? The narrow one. Now, Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Follow with me as Jesus is speaking again about divorce. Listen to what he says here. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. And they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Okay, you see the picture there? In other words, any reason you want to? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. Now, if you want to find a Christian argument for why marriage should be between a man and a woman, this is a great passage, the teaching of Christ. It refers back to the Old Testament, Genesis 2.24. And it doesn't. the new doesn't alter the old. It carries its, it, it's consistent, both in its uh, standards and its judgment. Um. Verse 5, for he said, Genesis two twenty four. for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It is a picture of sexual intercourse. I mean, it is a oneness in soul and everything else, but this is the marriage union. Verse 6, they are no longer two, but one. And therefore, what God has joined together, what does it say? So we're raising the standard for divorce. Linnell's dad used to have a sermon, divorce permitted, but not prescribed. Here's where it goes. Why then, verse 7, did Moses command that a man give a wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? In other words, in Deuteronomy. And Jesus said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because what? Your Your hearts were hard. And what were they hard to? They were hard to God and they were hard to God's teaching. But it was not this way from the beginning or the beginning of time. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for... Marital unfaithfulness. So now he goes back to the same thing he said in the Sermon on the Mount. um, And marries another woman, commits adultery. So now Jesus is saying the man is committing adultery. So this word sexual immorality is an interesting word. I want you to think about a couple things. Uh, What is is the, the, the narrow conservative reason the Bible gives for divorce? What does the Bible say about divorce and remarriage? And I will tell you, I cannot conclusively tell you everything in 10 minutes, but I'll give you an overview, but I will tell you there is a bit of disagreement on the subject in the Christian community. First of all, this word marital unfaithfulness, uh, it's the same word uh, uh, that Jesus used back in verse 32 of chapter 5, unfaithful. It's the Greek word porneia, which means a deviation from any biblical standards of sexual activity. Homosexuality, adultery, fornication, prostitution female prostitutes, male prostitutes. You realize in the biblical era, in pagan temples, they had uh, sexual prostitutes. And part of the worship experience was the sexual experience. And there were temple prostitutes, okay? Uh, in Corinth, it was a huge temple that was built to, to, to it, it worship one of the pagan gods. And, and there was so much immorality in Corinth because, guess what? It was mixed into their, to their religion. So this word, marital unfaithfulness... Um, Uh, basically was a reason that Jesus gave why a person could get out of their marriage. Now, let me say this quickly. Um, Just because you can get out doesn't mean you should get out. But clearly, and I'm going to be on the conservative end of it, the Bible mentions three things, why a person can get out of a marriage and be blessed in their remarriage. But it's possible they could be examples of, of broader, you know broader reasons why, let's kind of step into a little a little bit more. Um, let me read just a couple of paragraphs that, that one of the commentaries I was reading today talked about this. It said, there's no indication here that a second marriage, even after an illegitimate divorce, is seen as permanently adulterous. In other words, if you've married someone that's committed adultery or you've committed adultery and you're married... It does not imply that you are living in adultery the rest of your life. You have committed the act of adultery. Now, is the sin forgivable? Yes. Does the sin have consequences? Yes. Is hell in the picture? Yes. Can you explain to me how hell and forgiveness are in the same picture? No. So it's better to lean on the, you know, side away from hell towards, towards the, the laws of God. Divorced Christians who have remarried should not commit the sin of a second divorce to try to resume relations with a previous spouse. In other words, don't divorce the person you're with to go back to your first spouse, which I think is true. But you should begin afresh to observe God's standards by remaining faithful to your current partner. There was a prohibition in Deuteronomy 24 that even forbid people to go back and remarry a prior spouse. Let me read another paragraph, and my notes are always on the Internet. If you ever want to go back and pick them up, or if you want to go listen to the messages again in just a day or two, they're on the Internet, and you can download them, look at them, put them on your iPhone or whatever. Um, What's more, it's probably not the taking of a new husband that made the wife commit adultery. Now listen, since some divorced women remain unmarried, but Jesus maintained that divorce itself creates adultery. It's a metaphor. Because through infidelity to the lifelong covenant nature of marriage. So adultery is not, just, is not just the action, what happens afterwards, the adulterous act. But what it does, you have broken your covenant relationship with God. So forgivable, yes. Advised, no. Serious, yes. Do I understand all of it? No. Let's read a few more verses. Uh, Malachi chapter 2. Now let me ask you this question, kind of another little section here. Why is divorce such a big deal? Isn't happiness more important? Uh, Rebecca told me the other day in her school, half the kids in her school, their parents are divorced, which means probably half of us in our church are divorced. Uh, everyone has been touched by divorce, I guarantee. You've either been divorced, your parents were divorced. My, my parents are divorced. Uh, my brother married a divorced woman. Both of Linnell's sisters are divorced. It's just a part of our world. Uh, I, may, I, I have married people that have been divorced. Is it first choice? No. It, it's the world we live in. It's a very, it, this, is, this is a complicated subject. Um, Malachi chapter 2, verse 13. Why is divorce such a big deal? Here's another thing you do, verse 13. Now, now in this case, he's speaking to the Jews about 20, 20-so 20 years after they've returned from their captivity for their sin. You cover the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and groan because he pays no attentions to your offering and he doesn't accept them with pleasure. You cry out, "Why doesn't the Lord accept my worship?" Now that's a pretty bring. Why is things going bad for you in your life? Well, because the Lord witnessed the vows between you and your wife made when you were young, but you have been unfaithful to her, though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife, and body and spirit you're his. Now And what does He want? Godly children from your union. Marriage is not just about you. There's something to be said for making it work for the children. Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Here's where it all starts. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. Now look at verse 16. I hate divorce. Now listen. God does not hate divorced people. We have singled out sins in the church. We've singled out homosexuality. We've singled out divorce. Are they uh, wrong? Absolutely. Are they any different than lust, than adultery, than fornication, than you watching pornography? Come on. Is there any difference between lying? I mean, mean, sin is sin. But there's consequences that follow some sins that are way more serious. I can tell a lie and I might not get caught, and the only person that may know is, 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 is me and TurboTax... tax program and nobody else and the irs may not even pick it up i mean what's 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 a little fudge but some sins you commit did you look at our paper today virtually the whole front side of our two-thirds of it was about people who broken laws convicted of murder going to get executed all crimes against society and their sin had huge consequences i suggest you divorce is the same if you're a divorced person, do not take an, an iota's worth of condemnation from this message tonight. See, but the Bible, you have to come to grips with God hates divorce. And we've talked about the reasons why he hates adultery. I think divorce is the same. It uh, uh, says the Lord God of Israel, to divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty. Now, it's cruel on the husband, too. Now, in their day, listen, you know the problem in their day, a little different from today, a woman had no rights. She was not taken care of if she didn't have a man in her life to take care of her. Was that right? No, that's just the way that it was. In our world, it is a little bit different today. Cruelty goes both ways. But don't overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. There again, we've got this militant term, vengeance, hell, armies. Oh, Guard your heart don't be unfaithful to your wife. And conversely, ladies, we could say too, don't be unfaithful to your husband. Because again, in their day, the woman could only initiate divorce if it was through a court. But a husband could do it pretty much any reason that he wanted to. Remember what we've talked about. Let Let me kind of close with this scripture. Paul's teaching on divorce and remarriage. Now, this is a good one. The Apostle Paul, verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Now, I give this command for the married people. You know we don't like commands in America. We don't like anybody telling us what to do. That's why submission is so good for you. That's why all of us are called to submit. That's another message, but submission is a saving grace to bow my will and to break myself of independence and pride. Now, notice what he says. This command is not from me. It's from the Lord. So somehow in Paul's understanding, writing under inspiration, he realized something that came straight from heaven, and he said a a wife should not leave her husband. So now we kind of flip the roll. A wife shouldn't leave her husband. If she does leave, she must what? Not marry again. Or she should make up with her husband. Also, the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, this, this, uh, if she leaves him, some translation says if she separates. In my experience, I believe separation is sometimes appropriate. But you separate unto reconciliation not separate on the way to the divorce court. Because you're constantly trying to work towards reconciliation. And here's a problem. This is what I find as a pastor. Most of the times when two Christians come about divorce, what's going on is one of them wants to go after God and change, and one of them doesn't. I've just found it to be pretty much universally true. You do not have two people that are going hard after God. One person is not. And because the closer you get to it, sooner or later, one person is going to bolt from God. But here's what they'll invariably want to do. They'll want to get divorced, and then they'll want to get married, and then they'll want their kids back, and then they'll want to get back in church and have a happy life again and everything to be great. And it just doesn't work. Divorce is the sin that keeps on giving for the rest of your life because of the pain that follows. I'm 52 years old, and I see it every time I go home for Christmas. I go, I spend the night at mom's house. Christmas Eve, we spend with my dad. Christmas morning, we're with my mom. And then the day after Christmas, my dad leaves and goes sees his wife's parents. So that's how we hip and hop in the Miller household. Um, and that, but listen, it keeps going. Look at verse 12. For all others, I say this. Now, I'm saying this, not the Lord. What he's saying is, I believe this is good counsel for me, but I can't tell you 100% that this is a scripture, but I believe this is the way to go. For all others, I say this, uh, if a Christian man has a wife who's not a believer. Now, likely the scenario here is you've become a Christian and you wake up and you're a Christian and your spouse is not. So a wife is not the believer, but she's happy to live with him. Don't divorce her. But notice why it has nothing to do with personal happiness. Listen to the two reasons. One, it says, verse 13, if a Christian woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's happy to live with her, don't divorce him. The husband who is not a believer is made holy through the believing wife. The wife who's not a believer is made holy through the believing husband. What does that mean? Does that mean they're saved kind of vicariously? No. But in some way, they are seeing and experiencing a set-apart life to God that might lead to their salvation. And their salvation is more important than you having a husband to go to church with every Sunday morning. Stay with me. If this were not true, your children would not be clean. But now your children are holy. So once again, children enter to, into the equation that they are kept when, 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 when a marriage is kept together, even between a believer and an unbeliever. So it's not for the Christian in the marriage. It's for the other person's soul and it's for the children. But if those who are who are not believers decide to leave, let them leave. When this happened, the Christian man or woman is free. What does that mean? You're free to remarry with blessing. Okay. Um, but God's called us to live in peace. Wife, uh, you don't know, maybe you'll save your husband. Husband, you don't know, maybe you'll save your wife. Now that's not a reason that before you're Christian that you marry an unbeliever with the hopes that you'll get him saved. The Bible says don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. But what it is, if you find yourself in the situation where you're married and then somebody comes to Christ, that's that's his counsel. It's a little complicated, isn't it? You know, I I find that most situations are a little bit different, but the Bible's the Bible. Let me let me wrap up. Uh, Clearly, divorce is never to be taken lightly. And in the most strict sense, and I'll close with this divorce and remarriage is permitted in the following cases. Jesus said in the case of what adultery or some marital unfaithfulness, you're free to marry with God's blessing. Paul said if they what die Okay, you're free to remarry. But in the Lord, another verse. But then in this case, he said, if an unbeliever leaves you, you're free to be married. Now, here's the question to you, and I don't have 100% answer because people smarter than I disagree. Does the school of Hillel now apply the school of the Shammai guy? In other words, are these the only three reasons that a Christian can divorce and remarry? Or are they examples of extreme situations? The only one that I would add to this, and as Paul would say, i not the Lord, but I would say if there's violence or abuse in the home, I would never encourage a spouse to endure that. Now, the question is, what is violence? Is being yelled at emotional violence? I don't know. Certainly, if it's physical, I would say, get out. When my girls get married or my son, I'll say, listen, you're married. That's where you live. But if they ever hit you or anything like that, dad will be there for you. And if dad can't handle him, I got some big fellows who will show up in the middle of the night and they'll take care of him. You know? But um but even if they separate, there's still a hope for reconciliation. Because it's not apartment. Now, I'm telling you, I know godly marriage counselors that were say there's other examples. I, I tend to lead kind of on the closer side than myself. But I don't think violence and abuse should be in should be endured. Okay, so here what do we talk about tonight? Adultery. In the heart, we talked about marriage, sacred and binding. And the kind of the adage to go by tonight is, don't fool around, work out your difficulties and stay married. How about that? And Jim Ware said, Lord, we just pray today that we would take the word of God to heart. Let none of us walk in condemnation, but let us, all of us walk in the freedom and the forgiveness of Christ right where we are. Never let us presume our future, Lord, on what may be a... a, uh, a hope of forgiveness that everything will be okay and we can just kind of have a happy life. Let us be able to find the mind of Christ. And if we need help, if our marriage is in trouble, if we're struggling with immoral behavior, let us seek out help. I bless all my friends. Let all of us, Lord, first myself and every person in this room, let us live godly, holy lives in Jesus' name. Amen.